Welcome to you in my men enough. This is a show where people tell personal stories to critically examine the culture of toxic masculinity and the construction of masculinity in manhood. I'm Ada Jen. I'm the producer and the host of the show. Today is March 6, and we are at Women and Children First Bookstore. Welcome to the show. Women and Children First. Woo!、Uh, I'm Annabelle.、Uh, I'm just here to welcome you all to our space this evening. It is so exciting and affirming to see so many folks excited to engage with gender politics on this cold. Cold night.、Um, kudos to you,、uh, and it's, it's sort of warming us that that you're all here.、Um, so. Before I turn the mic over, we just have a couple things. The first thing is, if you're new to the store, welcome.、Uh, we're so glad you're here, and we want to make sure that you know we have events all the time. So、uh, next Wednesday, if this is a, a good night for you,、uh, same time, same place, we have Real Queer America, which is、um, where. It's a reading for a book by Samantha Allen. It's like on the ground reporting of, of queer people and queer lives in rural areas and other places in the United States、um, that we don't we don't really get to hear those stories as much.、Um, so I'm super excited about that event.、Uh, and if you would like more updates, we have a newsletter.、Um, All you need to do is write down your email address here, and we promise to be very judicious. We can only get it together to send one email a month. So even if you know we had aspirations, you would still only be getting one email a month. So and that's just our events and our book group selection. So I'm going to pass that around this way. And then I'm going to pass around the can for our Women's Voices Fund. So the Women's Voices Fund is the non, the small nonprofit arm of the store that we basically use to, to subsidize ticket costs for offsite events because accessibility is really important to us. Tonight we're doing something special.、Uh, we're asking for a suggested donation of five dollars because we are splitting this with the readers tonight.、Uh, so we're very excited to be doing that. If you don't have five dollars,、uh, that's okay. We're just really glad that you're here.、Um, <laughs> If you have more than five dollars and you're like, oh, my pockets are so heavy, we're also happy to help you in that regard.、Um, thank you. That was a generous laugh. <laughs> I was like, three cheers and not that funny. I really appreciate it. All right.、Um, and then also we、uh, we're a feminist bookstore. We've got a lot of feminist books and.、Uh, I believe Sarah, Sarah Hollenbeck and Ada Chung have sort of. This is a little syllabus for you all. If you'd like any suggestions, and also you can talk to me or Delaney up at the front, and we'll be happy to help you out if you're looking for for a book selection after you've enjoyed the readers this evening. All right, I'm going to start passing this around over here. And then, if we can get a warm welcome for your host this evening, Ada Chung. Thank you so much. How's everybody doing? Good. So I want to thank you. I know it's a cold night.、Um, sometimes it's really hard to know who's going to show up when the, the weather is not helping. But I'm really appreciating that you're all here.、Um, you all want to become better human beings,、ah, right? That's a, one of the goals for the show.、Uh, it's really.、Um, how many of you? This is your first time at the show. Am I man enough? Raise your hand. Oh. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. This is a power of storytelling. We're always drawing new crowd and and this show it's not just about telling personal stories, right? Yes, it's am I man enough? Uh, all the storytellers they will be telling personal stories to critically examine the culture of toxic masculinity and the construction of masculinity and manhood. But what's different is that the show integrates personal narrative and critical analysis. That is, it's not just personal stories, but we are also hoping to deliver um, sociological analysis, critical analysis of the urgent social issue that we all face as a society, individually and collectively. So the show is not uh, aims at emotional connection, but we also want to touch here, touch here. And let's all do that. Are you all ready? Perfect. And my name is Ada Jen. We got somebody drop out, so I'm going to start the show. And sometimes that happens. Um, people get nervous with stories because it's triggering. And so, totally fine, but I'm going to start off the show with a story. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I didn't see my older brother's face turn red. It was sudden, an outburst. Are you like rich? I travel to the United States a lot. The tipping has always been 10%. With his eyeballs, bulging out of their sockets. DC, my older brother, sitting on one end of a couch, yelled across the room while throwing coins onto my coffee table in the living room. His sharp words traveled through the air, passing Emma, my sister-in-law, who was sitting between us and reached me, sitting on the other side of the couch. My mother, standing in front of the fireplace across, from all three of us, shifted her gaze back and forth between us. She didn't want to have to take sides, not that she would take mine anyway. My brother sounded like he admitted to having lost an argument to a woman and had to do something about it. I didn't even know we were arguing. I recognize the tone of exacerbation when a man loses an argument to a woman. The kind of exacerbation when you need to salvage your pride and restore your ego. The exacerbation when you can't believe you lose to someone less than you. Not in intelligence, but in status and power. Just right before his outburst, I simply said, No. The tip for breakfast or lunch is at least 15%, and the tip for dinner is 20%. Tim is a waiter. He can tell you. My remark set him off because he couldn't believe I would contradict him and therefore embarrass him in front of his wife and our mother. I never waited tables before, but I learned enough from Tim, whom I was dating at the time. Tim had been a professional waiter for decades. My family and I just returned home from having lunch with him at Phoenix, a Chinese restaurant on South Archer in Chinatown. It was the first time my family met him. It was special in that sense. It was also special because my family just arrived two days prior from Taipei, Taiwan, 
my homeland for a visit for three days. It was August 2013. We hadn't seen each other for more than a decade since I last visited the island in 1999. Throughout the years, I could have returned to visit him. I never did. I chose not to. After we returned home from lunch, DC asked me why I gave the cab driver 20% tip for our ride to Chinatown. To be fair, we were stuck in traffic and were going to be late. I just wanted to thank him for getting us to Chinatown on time to meet Tim. Our discussion went from tipping from cab drivers to tipping for wait staffs at the restaurants. Stop this. There's no need to argue over this. My sister-in-law, Emma, tried to mediate between the two of us. By then, my brother and I were both sitting on the edge of the couch, bracing for a confrontation. I was ready to respond. I had all the facts and arguments in my head. But then, I paused. I remember why I chose not to return home, not even for a short visit. Born as the youngest one in the family and a woman in a culture that often devalued members of my gender, I realized very early on that I didn't have much say in my family or in my society as a girl slash woman. Even before my father passed away, my brother already learned to see himself as the man in the house a culturally sanctioned role that came with responsibility to care for family members as well as the power and authority to control and dominate them. He took the liberty to discipline me without a request from my parents. He knew he could do so simply because he was older and was a boy slash man. He used to slap me across my face when we had disagreements or when he couldn't win arguments. He resorted to physical force when verbal assaults were insufficient to subdue me. Of course, my brother wasn't born a monster. He learned to slap me from our mother, who used to find ingenious ways to discipline us that border on child abuse looking back. He never had to control his temper either when interacting with my mother and I, both members of a lesser gender and thus lesser in status and power. He learned that from my father. When interacting with members of lesser gender or status and power, you don't need to consider how they feel or what they think. You do as you wish. Growing up as a boy slash man, my brother is socialized to forget that the other half has feelings and knows how to think. He never has to learn how to graciously lose arguments to them or to me. At a moment of his outburst, I see my mother unwilling to take sides, even when she knows I'm right and he's wrong. Unwilling because even as a mother, she knows her place in relation to him as a man. I also see my own father staring right back at me. 
My brother is an exact mirror image of my father. My father's unpredictable temper was enough to terrorize my family, particularly my brother and my mother. We would tiptoe around him with fear, holding our breath, waiting for him to explode at any moment. He didn't need to hit us. The fear was adequate to keep us in line. I used to say that he had a terrible temper. Now I say he is abusive, verbally and emotionally, if not physically. It took me decades to name my family dynamics as domestic violence. After my father passed away, my brother assumed the role as the patriarch in the family, as a dutiful oldest son would do. When I returned to do field work in 1999, I witnessed how both my mother and my sister-in-law tiptoed around him, worried that his temper might flare up at the spur of the moment. One time, my brother yelled at Emma at a restaurant simply because she disagreed with him, without considering how it might make her feel in front of us. For a second, I thought I was watching my own parents. And now there he is, sitting in my apartment and having an outburst simply because I disagree with him. My brother has turned into the same man who used to terrorize him. As much as my brother was terrified of my father, he also respected and adored him. While we both were victims growing up in an abusive household, he never did question the authority my father had assumed, knowing that he himself would soon claim it and use it to his own advantage. I stopped myself right there. I felt sorrow for my brother and terror for my mother and my sister-in-law. For my whole life, I had tried hard to work my way out of a cycle of violence because I saw myself inherit some of it from my father. I never wanted to subject another human being to that kind of dynamics. I was glad I was not my father, but I ached for my brother, who didn't know that he had turned into someone also so familiar. That was the last time I saw him, and that was the last time I wanted to see him or them until he changes. Thank you. Start off with a, talk st uh, with a tough story. Uh, throughout the show, you will see that each storyteller, we're going to have dialogue from each other. We're going to talk about toxic masculinity from different angles. And it's not about demonized people. It's to think about how that culture is passed on intergenerationally. And it starts right at home. Are you ready for our second storyteller? Very good. 
our second storyteller, Levon Hawkins. When was the first time that we did a show together? 2016, in June, prize show for your being ridiculous. And what were we memorizing that for that event? It was right after the massacre at Pulse Dance Club. Do you remember that? It is all very related. Look at toxic masculinity permeates every aspect of life. Domestic violence, sexual assault, gun violence, homophobia, transphobia, everything. Let's welcome Levon Hawkins. It's Friday evening. I'm 15. I'm at the weekly junior usher board meeting at my church. Junior ushers were between the ages of 7 and 18, and two Sundays a month welcomed ch churchgoers with a dazzling smile and a series of precise and synchronized moves. I'm arguing with Robert Mason, our president slash dictator for life. <laughs> Robert and I shared the same birthday, and we were both sissies. This was not a brand name we chose for ourselves. I certainly didn't. I was doing everything I could to be manly, to be like every other male. My behavior was a little more subtle than Robert's, and for a long time, I thought that that made a difference. Then one day, at a crowded cafeteria table at my high school, one of my male classmates told the others in front of me that I was a sophisticated sissy, one who one, he explained, who couldn't be detected on first glance. But if you watched me closely, the sensual way I laid my ass against the gymnasium wall waiting for jockstrap inspection, you'd know that I was a male of the Sissy Sally fairy variety. Now, I was shocked and embarrassed. I thought if I wore the cool clothes the cool dudes wore, instead of dressing like a nerd with high water pants and no style, no one would see me, and I would be left alone. It didn't work. Here's the difference between Robert and me. I did everything I could to fit in. He did everything he could to stand out. A few weeks before this meeting, 
He had gone to the junior, junior senior building of our high school to pick up Mike, the organist at our church. For the occasion, Robert wore Jackie O sunglasses. Kind of like, if you, for those who don't know what Jackie O sunglasses look like, <laughs> kind of like these, but larger. He wore a black turban with matching black gloves and a full-length fur coat that stopped halfway down his legs. Dozens of male students gathered around him laughing in his face and taunting him, branding him in case he didn't know that he was a member of the Sissy Sally fairy variety. I wasn't there, thank God. I couldn't be seen with Robert except when performing usher duties in the church. One, I felt that I had done way too, spent way too much work transforming myself to negate it by hanging out with him. Secondly, my mother told us that we weren't to be seen with that Mason boy who didn't know whether he was a boy or a girl. So, if we were together, Robert and I, Robert would draw everyone's attention. Then they would broaden their lens and zoom in on me. And as my classmate in the cafeteria said, in front of everybody, all would be revealed. That Friday night at church, I couldn't master a a, a new sequence of moves Robert had choreographed. I was the only one on the usher board who couldn't do it. Out of the seven-year-olds, the eight-year-old girl with polio, and Mr. Perry, our 70-something supervisor. <laughs> wrong, 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 Robert yelled at me. Amateur. <laughs> there's, nothing to matter, there's nothing to matter with me. Your moves suck. Everyone in the cafe, everyone in the sanitary, uh, in the sanctuary, including Mr. Perry, gasped. No one, including Mr. Perry, dared defy Robert. <laughs> Suddenly, a black flash is moving towards my face. I duck as a Bible misses over missiles over my head. The word of God rocketing over me at a thousand miles an hour. The holy book has a lot of pages. <laughs> I was one chapter away from being decapitated. <laughs> you almost hit me, I yelled at Robert. If I wanted to hit you, I would have. You saw what he did, I said to Mr. Perry. Now he said he wasn't trying to hit you, Mr. Perry said meekly. I loved Mr. Perry. But he was no match for Robert and wasn't good for anything but taking me to the emergency room the day Robert finally took my head off. <laughs> Months later, Robert modeled at our church's annual fashion, Palm Sunday fashion show, the biggest event of the, of the year. My love for fashion started at the Palm Sunday fashion show. When I was around seven, the age when I became a junior usher, I became mesmerized by the models in that year's fashion show with their elaborate turns and colorful clothing. 
I wasn't old enough to be aware of the subtleties of color. I believed everything, I viewed everything through the prism of the simple colors of my first crayon box. Blue, green, red, yellow. At 15, I, know magenta, I knew magenta and charism, but only used the word pink in my efforts to be cool. That day, that year, my aunt was chairperson of the fashion show. I was her assistant. I did all the heavy work, observed how fashion shows were put together, and went to all the rehearsals. I was a crack addict working in a crack house. I loved it all, but only allowed myself to be thrilled on the inside, to keep up my front, occasionally, occasionally complaining about the, all the unmanly fashion stuff my aunt had me doing. In my mind, Robert ended up ruining the event that I had waited all year for. Next, we have Robert Mason, the MC excitedly told the audience. Robert sashayed onto the stage wearing another pair of Jackie O sunglasses. This pair practically covered his whole face. Robert is wearing oversized sunglasses, which are the latest rage for women, the president of the Deacon Board said, sitting behind me. His wife turned to him and put her finger to her lips to shush him. Robert is wearing a gray tweed sport coat with yellow flats, a silk yellow pocket square, yellow linen pants, and pale yellow socks, gray Stacy Adams shoes, and a yellow silk dress shirt designed by him. Robert seduced the audience, male and female, and stalked the stage. He slowly began to take off his coat. Go, Robert! Go, Robert! The, the announcer said, let it all hang out. Robert slowly removed the coat, held it in one hand, then swiveled his back to the audience. He had cut out a large heart in the back of his shirt. Inside the heart was his shiny, naked back. Suddenly, he dropped the coat to the floor and stormed down the runway, his butt cheeks thundering in his tight yellow linen pants. I thought I saw sparks bouncing off his ass. The deacon leaned in towards me and said, your president. He frowned and rolled his eyes toward the stage. I did the same. Robert was the talk of our small town. The deacon called an emergency deacon board meeting and later informed my aunt Robert could no longer model at church events. When I ushered the next Sunday, I felt everyone's eyes on me, a member of Robert's crew, their zoom lenses moving in closer and closer. I had had enough. In my convoluted, convoluted thinking, I decided to take Robert's job so he would quit. I would have my brother nominate me at the end of the year for president of the junior usher board. I had a great chance of winning. The other ushers were just as tired of Robert, especially the boys, for his Bible-throwing antics and effeminate ways. 
After my brother nominated me, Robert stood at the head of the sanctuary, his face panicked, looking around the room, tallying votes in his head. I smirked at him. Before we proceeded to vote, Mr. Perry asked to speak. There's a lot of work involved with being president, Mr. Perry said. Rehearsals, district and state meetings. It's not just a show or play. As Mr. Perry spoke, I realized he was telling the ushers I didn't have the ability to be president. Only Robert did. He had me believing it too. Humiliated and angry, I withdrew from the race. A few Fridays later, Robert mocked me as I struggled with the move. I told him his move sucked and called him a fired former supermodel. He grabbed a Bible off the table and threw it at me, the word of God speeding towards me once again. In those seconds, I heard my classmate call me a sophisticated sissy. Being an usher with Robert confirmed what everyone thought about me. I wanted out. I decided not to duck. The Bible slammed me against, against my nose and my mouth, barely missing my eyes. I grabbed my face and fell to the floor as one of the little girls screamed. I didn't have to do much acting. That shit hurt. I told my brother to help me, help me up, then said, come on. We walked defiantly through the church, smirking as we walked out the door. When we arrived home, my mother was in the kitchen preparing dinner. She had been a junior usher when she was young. As soon as, soon as we were seven, she signed us up. She would be displeased we walked out. I had to awaken the two things that would stop me from returning to the usher board so I could continue cultivating my image of being cool. I had to use my mother's limited view of how men behaved, and I had to use her homophobia. That Robert Mason, I said. I told you I don't want you around that boy other than church. I'm not. He hit me in the face with a Bible on purpose. Look at my lip, it's swollen. That was the end of my ushering. I wasn't aware of internalized homophobia when I began altering myself to please people who hated me. I wasn't aware I was learning about being manly from people who had a hateful cartoon image of manhood. I didn't realize no matter how much I attempted to appease these people, they weren't going to be satisfied until there was no more of me left. Recently, I saw a picture of actor Billy Porter at the Oscars in his tuxedo dress and thought of Robert. He would have loved that dress. The 15-year-old in me frowned and shook my head. Then the adult me remembered Robert and Billy weren't the ones who spent their lives denying themselves to please their oppressors. I looked at the picture again. This time, I chuckled and said with envy, look at you, Billy, fierce and free.
Thank you so much, Laurent. Wonderful, powerful piece. To think about it, um, we tend to think of teasing, bullying, uh, jokes, a separate phenomenon from violence. Let's think of them as a spectrum, right? It starts with teasing and bullying and joking. What it does is we label people, right? We put them into categories and it starts very young. And then we don't allow boys to become who they are. We deny part of, the, part of their humanity, right? Thank you so much, Long, for that piece. And I really appreciate point out the internalized homophobia that we ourselves can carry. How's everyone doing? Good. That's, are you ready for our third storyteller? Ah, wonderful. Well, well, Webby, where are you? Well, ah, you're there. They're an actor. They're, I didn't know you. You're a singer, songwriter, and you also have this nickname, Campfire Wheel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's always in transition. Uh, they're very different from the first time I met them, and now they're very different. Let's welcome Will. So this is my first time um, doing anything like this. So this is a little bit, thank you. Uh, <laughs> this is a little bit less of a story and more of uh, just a personal reflection. The house I grew up in was always falling apart. The ceiling in the living room slowly falling down. The porch stairs crumbling. No lock on any door functional. It's been a year of me living independently from that house, and as parts of myself come online for the first time, I am able to look at that house and witness what was going on inside for so long. My mother. <sighs> when I was nine years old, she was hospitalized, and everything changed. She is a victim of sexual assault, and the incident triggered a manic episode. My mother has bipolar disorder. She started hearing voices, which became apparent when she pleaded for someone to stop talking to her while we were silently eating dinner. I don't have many memories of my mother before her hospitalization, only home videos of us singing a song she made up and dancing on furniture. Most of my life, my mom was asleep, hungover, or drunk. She was coping with her medications, and I assume her memories, so me and my brother, Simon, mostly raised ourselves alongside our dad. I have a memory of me and Simon drawing a family portrait, and we drew Mama's Snorlax, which, if you didn't watch Pokemon, was a giant panda bear type who would only awaken if you had a special flute. This is all to say that my mom was physically around, kind of, but totally emotionally unavailable. The three of us coped by toughening up and moving forward. I busied myself at the park house, and Simon was taking advanced classes at his middle school. See, he was the smart one, like Dad, and I was the creative one, like Mom. 
only at the sixth by sixth grade, it was clear to me that my biggest fear in the world was to be my mother. See, to be my mother meant to be weak, unable to take care of myself, not dependable, emotional. To be my mother meant to be a woman. I am a non-binary person. For me, that means I don't identify as a man or a woman, but something in between or entirely different. One of the hardest conversations I had with myself when I desired a new name, new pronouns, new presentation was, am I acting from a place of gender liberation or internalized misogyny? I would ask myself this every time I bound my breasts and every time I cringed at my birth name. I questioned why it was so painful to be perceived as a woman. Was it because I am not a woman? Or because for me, being a woman like my mother was the absolute worst thing that you could be. Now, as binding as it was to be a woman, in that house, being a man was just as bad because in my household, that meant violence, repression of emotions, power, absolute control, and responsibility. In my childhood door, there are eight-inch slashes from an axe and a golf ball-sized hole from where my brother tried to knock down my door with a hammer. The lock doesn't work. In fact, the doorknob fell off a long time ago and I fastened a chain on it a few years back when I was living at home. When my brother wanted to speak with me, the door would open an inch and the chain would rustle and his words would ramble and I was afraid. My papa. My dad is a craftsman and his own boss. He's never been employed by someone else and it shows in his impressive lack of communication skills, especially when it comes to his own feelings. My dad is a good father. He loves me and his five children a ton, and he works 14 hours, seven days a week so that we can all love our lives and be happy. When I think about my experience of my dad's gender, masculinity is not the first word that comes to mind. He is an artist, and he likes to wiggle his butt when he dances. But when I think of my dad... I think of a gentle spirit who kisses my mom tenderly every day. But when I really dig back to my formative years, to what it was like being in that toxic household, flashes of a seemingly different person come to mind. When my father's calm disposition was threatened by trigger, he would scream through gritted teeth and tense his hands, poke the same spot in my mother's arms over and over because he wanted to punch her, but he couldn't bring himself to. He grabbed her shoulders and shook her body as he chastised her or told her to shut up or told her why she was ruining everything or told her why she should go wait in the car. It was always go wait in the car or go lie down with some insinuation that if she would just get out of everyone's hair, the adults would figure everything out. If my mom was anxious, then my dad was going to snap every single time. And every single time, it was her fault. And I was taking notes. When I was in the third grade, I was standing in front of a mirror with a butcher's knife to my neck because I just made my mother cry, and I thought I deserved to die for it. Not only had I made her cry, but I manipulated her into thinking that it was her fault that I made her cry. I was in grammar school, and I was already highly functional at gaslighting. Years later, when I was a teenager, I made her cry again. I was trying to not explode, and it leaked out anyway. I shook her. 
Dad sent me into my room, and when he came in, he was crying, slapped my leg, and told me in a piercing son, that is my sweetheart down there. Not, you don't do that to anyone. Not, that is your mother, you should respect her, but that is my sweetheart. I wonder if he didn't properly punish me because he knew he was a hypocrite. The front and back doors were always open. Not sure why no one ever broke in. It was probably impossible to. My brother. I didn't know it at the time, but my brother had intense anxiety. When family would come over, he would hide in the basement with towels over his head, and he would never sleep over at his friends' houses. I didn't understand him, and I never asked. After mom got sick, he got angry. He would throw anything at mom and I, pillows, dishware, anything. He would explode, and we were afraid. Eventually, he stopped eating at the table, stopped being around the house, stopped being friends with me, and we didn't trust each other. Mom buried herself into my performance career, and Simon got left alone. It wasn't until we were both adults that we spoke about growing up in that house. He and I were left to parent ourselves, and in the process of growing up fast, you have wild ideas of what an adult person is. I think we're both currently working through what it means to be an adult person away from that house's influence. I was always a little jealous of Simon. All my friends had crushes on him because he was cute. He played guitar, which I do too. And he was super intelligent. He dated a girl in high school, Audrey, who became a part of the family and is still a part of my life to this day. This year, Audrey called me and said, Hey, Will, Simon and my relationship was abusive. And then suddenly, all the memories came flowing together. Simon liked to play fight. He liked to wrestle, tickle, tackle, snowball fight, you name it. But when you, presumably not a man, was done, or wasn't having fun, or wasn't in the mood, he would whine in a baby voice and and continue to mess with you. But when Simon was done playing and you didn't stop, you were in trouble. I watched the very same flirtation that got him praise and love go from cute to dangerous in instants. I watched him systematically taking away power and exercising control over Audrey the same way we would to our mother. Lying in bed in my apartment, looking out the window at the sunlight, I think of what it took to be here, and I smile. I am an actor. I'm constantly having to face what people think about how I look and sound and behave and come across. So I've thought a lot about how I can try to come across in a way that feels good to me. There are ways that I could stand to seem more masculine. There are vowels I could adapt to when I sing to sound more masculine. There are so many little ways that I could front that I'm a man but I am not a man, and I am not a woman, and I'm binary, and that doesn't look like anything, but it does. I often find myself battling thoughts that my body shape is too feminine to be a boy, hair too masculine to be a girl, voice too feminine to be castable, and I look around for cues of behavior that people like me are supposed to do, but there aren't any. So I have this haircut, and I wear these clothes, 
and I don't let a man make me get on the bus first. Don't let people get away with calling me ma'am. Don't learn that it's my job to be safe. Learn that it's my job to be strong, my job to speak up. I feel the responsibility to be the perfect man for the kid inside me and the people around me. I am ashamed of the way I treated my mother growing up. I'm confused that my father didn't step in. I am saddened by how much we were all hurting. My father went to therapy for the first time this week. I am not sure how well it went, but I hope he goes again. I hope that Simon recognizes his toxic ass behaviors like I have, and I hope that he has loving relationships where he feels safe. My mother, I just hope that she hopes, lets me give her a big hug next time I see her. And me, look, I got to choose who I am in a way that not everyone allows themselves to do. I hope that someday my family learns how to be hurt and grieve and be angry by my example, and that the toxicity of that household stops with me. Thank you. Is this really the first time you tell a story? Yeah. No way. Can we? I mean, I'm ashamed. But um, I want to point out something really important. That one thing you said, um, does it come from the, the place of gender liberation? Or does it come from the way we conceptualize masculinity and manhood? It's about what? It's a denial of femininity. It's a devaluation of a femininity. Because you ask men in the society, what's the worst thing? What's the worst? name that people can call you. Sissy, like a woman. So to be men in this country is a devaluation of womanhood, denial of femininity. So then how do we change? It can't be just women become masculine unless we embrace femininity. It's not going to work. But I really appreciate that you mentioned something really important. How do you stop the cycle of violence? Starting from you and me. Because we are all complicit to a certain extent, right? How's everyone doing? Very good. Are you ready for our next storyteller? Very good. I'm going to introduce Tony Hotran. Yes, um, freelance professional, freelancer, professional genealogist. Um, how did I actually meet him? We were Facebook friends, and then he wrote an article about his family, and and I invited him to tell a story, and I didn't realize that Stepan Diamond, um, brilliant teller, fantastic, creative. Let's welcome Tony. Hey everyone, happy Ash Wednesday for all the Catholics out there. That's weird, I'm sorry, I'm nervous. Um, so, it was the summer after eighth grade, and um, 
I was this young, awkward, chubby, 14-year-old mixed-race Asian kid who had yet to hear someone ask him, like, hey, do you know you kind of look like Bruno Mars? <laughs> I had the whole world ahead of me. You know, I had four years of high school to look forward to and four years of college. But on that first day, that first day of summer, I only had one thing on my mind. You see, I had been invited to a party. Not just any party. It was the party to end all parties. It was a party that would have made both royal weddings look like the fire festival. <laughs> That's because I had just been invited to Ashley Peterson's eighth grade graduation pool party. Coachella, eat your heart out. You got nothing on this party. Everyone was going to be there. Everyone. Even my middle school crush, Hannah McElroy. Oh, my God. I had the biggest crush on Hannah. The biggest crush. It was the kind of crush that only a 14-year-old boy could muster. And that's all to say that it was awkward, it was clumsy, and it was big. Just like I was. I remember I had second period social studies with Hannah. And whenever I wasn't, you know, doing homework, I was always trying to sneak glances at her. She had this long, gorgeous red hair, these striking blue eyes, and she had these freckles on her face that looked like fireworks exploding. But what I liked most about her was her laugh. She had the prettiest laugh. Um, I would spend my time whenever I sat next to her trying to make her laugh just so I could hear it. To me, it sounded kind of like church bells ringing, just kind of elegant and beautiful and airy, like everything that she was. And she was going to be there. I had imagined us walking poolside, bathed in moonlight, hand in hand. You know, I would crack a joke, and she would laugh, that pretty laugh of hers, and I would stop, and I'd say something cool like, hey, Hannah, I just wanted to let you know I think you're really cool. <laughs> then, uh, you know, we'd kiss and have kids and uh, <laughs> move out. Then we'd move out to a house with a white picket fence somewhere in Iowa, the American dream. Um, she was going to be there. I was nervous. Luckily, though, my best friend, my partner in crime, Jimmy Thielen, he was going to be there, too. Uh, me and Jimmy, we weren't the coolest kids in the school, if you couldn't tell already. And um, we had made a pact that if something went wrong at the party, that we would leave together, you know, through thick and thin. And so the plan was for me and Jimmy to be picked up by Jimmy's mom. Uh, she would drive us to Ashley Peterson's house, drop us off, and then later on she would come and pick us up. Um, Jimmy's mom... Real fascinating lady. She was a pack-a-day smoker. Two packs a day now, if you can believe it. And uh, she had this really gravelly voice like this. And when she came to pick me up, I was really nervous. It was like super quiet. As soon as I walked into the car, I just sat down and stared out the window. And I remember she lit up a cigarette and took a puff of it. And she was like, Tony, what's wrong? Why are you so quiet? A cat got your tongue or something? And Jimmy, he would just you know, elbow me in the ribs, and he said, uh, oh, Tony's just nervous because Hannah's going to be there. <laughs> Jimmy's mom, she just laughed, and she was just like, ah, Tony, you got nothing to worry about, nothing. Girls your age, they're easy. Trust me, I would know. I was one, too. <laughs> the trick is to be confident. You know, man up. But uh, don't be afraid to show her what's on the inside. That's what counts. And I smiled, and you know, I thanked her for her crappy advice. And 
She drove us to Ashley Peterson's house. And Ashley Peterson had this huge house, just massive. It was like a mansion, the biggest house I'd ever seen. And there were already a ton of kids there. Kids just running around, playing. Her dad was like grilling hot dogs in the back. It was a lot of fun. Jimmy and I hopped out, and we went to the pool. We just hung out with our friends and played around. Record scratch. Hannah walks in. (laughs) And it was like that scene in movies where everything slows down, and there she was. And Here's the kicker. She was in a one-piece bathing suit, which admittedly was super conservative now, but like then to me in my pubescent 14-year-old mind, I was like, oh my God, like what am I going to do? And um, I started getting nervous, really, really nervous in between all this. And something you should know, when I got nervous, especially at 14 years old, something I would do would be two things. Number one, I would swallow air. Like literally, I would go like, and I would do it subconsciously, like I didn't even realize it, like it was a nervous tick. And number two, I would eat. I would eat a lot. Luckily, there was a huge spread of food there. There was like pizza, hot dogs, hamburgers, chips, you name it. Unluckily, there was a huge spread of food there, and I was a fat ass. And I was, if I wasn't playing in the pool with Jimmy, or if I wasn't trying to sneak glances at Hannah, I was eating, and I was swallowing air. The night went on. Things started to quiet down. All the kids went into Ashley Peterson's basement to just hang out and play Guitar Hero, you know, just doing things that kids do in 2006. And um, I heard the words that would go on to rue me even to this day. It's the words that every awkward 14-year-old boy hates to hear when he's at a party with other 14-year-olds. Hey, does anyone want to play Spin the Bottle? Ooh, yeah, that's right. Spin the bottle. Spin the fucking bottle. Those three words, I even rue to this day, spin the bottle. Ashley ran up to her parents' recycling area. She grabbed a wine bottle. She went downstairs. And all right, super wholesome. And um, all the kids sat in a circle in the basement floor, and we put the bottle in the middle. I was nervous, but, you know, I tried to look on the bright side of things. Like, oh, what if I got to, you know, maybe kiss Hannah's hand or kiss Hannah's cheek, wouldn't that be cool? And I wasn't even thinking about, you know, what might actually happen. No, real quick, I got to explain the rules of spin the bottle because we played it a little bit differently than you might have. First spin, you land on someone, you kiss them on the hand. Second spin, if you land on the same person, you kiss them on the cheek. Third spin, if you land on the same person again, seven minutes in heaven. What? Can you believe that? Seven minutes in heaven. It's kiss on the hand, kiss on the cheek, then seven minutes in heaven. What is that? What is that jump? That's like, that's like going up to like a Little League baseball player and being like, hey, Johnny, you're really good at Little League baseball. You're really good. How about you'd like to be the president of the United States of America? Because it's not even the same sport. It's not even the same league. All that aside. We started going around the circle. Hannah was sitting across from me, and I remember it got to me, and I spun it, and around and around and around it went like a whirlpool. Slowed down, landed right on Hannah. I get up, you know, I do a fancy little flourish, and I grab her hand, and I do a bow, and I kiss her, like the gentleman I am, and that cracked her up and got her laughing, and I got to hear her laugh, and that was nice. I went back, and I sat down. I was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I sat back down, and I was like, all right, this is, this is going pretty well, all right, not too bad. And Jimmy was just, you know, elbow me in the ribs, and I was like, this is going to be good. Second spin, we go through the whole line again, gets to me. I spin the bottle. Round and around and around and around it goes, and it slows down finally until it lands right on Hannah again. Now things are getting serious. 
tensions rising. Um, kids are starting to laugh. They're like, ooh. I try to brush it off. I stand up. I plant one right on one of the fireworks on her cheeks. And I go back and I sit down. But I'm nervous, man. I'm real nervous. Are you kidding me? I'm swallowing so much air. <laughs> I'm just like, what's going to happen? Finally gets to me again. And I give it a really strong spin. <laughs> and I'm going at a thousand thoughts per minute. I'm thinking, oh, what if I get, to, what if I land on her again? <laughs> what if I have to go seven minutes in heaven? Seven minutes in heaven? We're like seven minutes in hell. Like, what's gonna be going on? Like, what are what are the chances really of me landing on Hannah again? That's like one in a million. No, that's one in a billion. And the bottle starts to slow down. Guess who it lands on? Right on Hannah, and the entire room explodes in laughter. You got kids just like rolling on the floor, doubled over with laughter. Ah! I felt like Chris Rock at the Apollo, but instead of jokes, Chris Rock had to kiss his middle school crush in front of everyone. It was insane. And, you know, I started trying to play it off. Like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this, guys. Maybe we should, like, play Guitar Hero. Who wants to play with me? (laughs) Nobody was having it, as you can imagine. No one was having it. Finally, Jimmy turned to me. He said very loudly, he said, oh, come on, Tony. Don't you remember? You got to man up. Man up, man up. Those two words were irrefutable pieces of argument to any eighth grade boy. Man up. I looked at Jimmy, and I looked at Hannah, and we just broke eye contact. I could see that she was blushing, and I'm sure if she saw me, she could see that I was glowing red. Finally, I heard Hannah pipe up. Ashley, where's your closet? And I was like, oh, what? (laughs) Oh, this is how, all right. right. So all the kids start laughing, you know, they're cheering for us and jeering. A few of them are like, you know, humming the wedding march, like da, 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 da. They're asshole eighth graders, you know. And as Ashley was leading us to her bedroom closet in the basement, I felt like I was a prisoner on death row walking to the electric chair. Ashley finally got to her closet She opened the door slowly and gestured in. (laughs) Hannah walked in. Then I slowly crossed the threshold right after her. And Ashley slowly closed the door (laughs) after us, plunging us in darkness. And we just stood there in the dark for a little bit. And we were standing so close that I could feel the heat of Hannah's breath on my face. As my eyes started to adjust to the darkness, I could make out her face, and I could see that she was just as scared as I was. And light was creeping in through the cracks of the door, and I could make out a little bit more of her features. And finally, she just goes to me, and she just says, well, I guess this is it. And she laughs, that beautiful laugh of hers, and I just say, yeah, I I guess it is. And then she closes her eyes and leans into me. That's when it happens. Now, you guys remember how I was telling you about how When I was nervous, I would swallow a lot of air, and I would also eat. That turns out to be a recipe for an irritable stomach. And I found that out when Hannah leaned into me, and I vomited all over her face. All over her face. All this pent-up tension, all this nervousness, all the pizza, hot dogs, hamburgers, sodas of all different varieties. Splashing. I was like a fire hose. It was bad. It was bad. Finally... After a while, what felt like forever, I stopped. 
and I am horrified. She's horrified. We're like, uh, uh, and I'm about to apologize. I'm about to say, oh, I'm sorry. I get midway through sorry, and she vomits on me. <laughs> All over me. Just, uh, uh. We were like the fountain show at the Bellagio, just trading just spurts of, of vomit back and forth. Finally, I grab the doorknob. I'm like, it's time to go. But I can't open it. Something's stopping me from opening it. Scientists say that in life and death situations, that the human body is capable of superhuman strength and power. Now, I'm not sure if that was necessarily a life or death situation, but I know that I tried to muster all the superhuman strength and power as I could as I threw my body against this door, completely splintering it, knocking it off its hinges. And it turned out that I couldn't open it because there were a the entire party was on the other side, like, listening to us. So as soon as I opened it, like, a dozen eighth graders went flying, like, all over the <laughs> Landing everywhere. Eventually, I go out, and as I'm walking out, covered in vomit, I just say, like, ah, oh, Jimmy, it's time to go, and I beeline just towards the back door. I went out the back door as fast as I could without running, and I didn't even give myself time to put on my shoes. And I remember I went around the house and I went to the street where there was a single street lamp. It was dark at this time, shining on a curb. And I sat down on that curb and I cried. Instead of walking along the poolside in the moonlight hand in hand, convincing Hannah to love me forever, I was completely and utterly alone. And I wish so badly that I could just go back in time and go up to that boy who was crying on that curb and tell him that it was gonna be all right. I would tell him that even though his friends would never let him let it, live it down, that they still bring it up when he comes back home for Thanksgivings and Christmas, <laughs> that he would let it go, that he would go on to have a great summer and he would go to high school and he would go to college and he would meet other girls and he would fall in and out of love more times than he could count. And that Hannah would go on and she would fall in love too. That she would become a nurse. She would save lives. She would meet a man that she fell in love with and they would get married and they would have the house somewhere in Iowa with a white picket fence. I would tell him that occasionally he would see Hannah again, though they don't really talk that much, over drinks with friends at the holidays. And he would try to make her laugh, to hear that beautiful laugh that he heard all those years ago. I would tell him that eventually he would move to Chicago, where nobody knew about the story. Well, barely anyone knows about the story. And I would tell him that he would fall deeply in love with someone there, too. That they would move in together. They would get a dog. He would find a job that really fulfills him. He would find friends that he cherishes and cherishes him. And one day, he would get up in front of a room full of people and tell them the story about how he vomited on Hannah McElroy. <laughs> I would tell him that he learned, he will learn, that the words man up don't really mean anything. I would tell him that in about half an hour, Jimmy's mom would come and pick him up, that she wouldn't even comment on why he was covered in two different people's vomit, why he didn't have any shoes on that he would sit in the back seat and stare out the window and she would light up a cigarette 
and look at him in the rearview mirror and ask, well, how'd it go? <laughs> and that he would think, and then he would smile. He would look up, and he would say, you were right. All I had to do was show her what was on the inside. <laughs> Thank you. Very good. How many of you have children? <laughs> Think about what they're doing. Um, <laughs> oh, scary, scary. Go home and ask your children. Um, but the thing is that we oftentimes forget uh, heterosexual masculinity is a credit that you have to prove over and over again with various things, right? Um, interactions, you have to constantly prove your masculinity, manhood in every minute of your life. So think of it, it's a facade that you have to put on as a mask and also as something that you have to prove and demonstrate. And at some point, you're going to lose your humanity if you have to prove and to act differently, as Lavon pointed out. How's everyone doing? Very good. Are you ready for our next storyteller? Very good. Himabindu, Popuri, where are you? They just got a new job with Steppenwolf Theater, right? Look out, Siri, that's congratulate Himabindu. And are you still a fellow with the Illinois Coalition for Immigrants and Refugee Not Rights? Anymore. Not anymore, but the new job is spend uh, Steppenwolf Theater. Wonderful, thank you. And the first time we met was 2017. We did a show together. Fabulous, fabulous. Let's welcome Himabindu Popori. Hi, everyone. First of all, congratulations to all of the storytellers before me. I think everyone's been doing such a phenomenal job. I and my family come from a very full life and history that is very different from the lives and histories of probably many of the people in this room. But I have to apologize to Ada and say that I don't think I have the ability to provide any sort of nuanced socio-political analysis of that because I am way too in my feelings. So instead, I think uh, I'm going to live in those feelings a little bit. Is it OK if I played a song? Cool. The refrain of this song says over and over again, please don't make any promises. Please don't make any promises. Please don't make any promises. But if you do make a promise, please don't break that promise. And it's one of my dad's and my favorite songs. I am here to tell you today that I love my dad. 
Today I am here to offer my unwavering and never-ending loyalty to my ridiculous, angry, trend-setting, silently terrified, continent-traversing, non-believing, lonely, pontificating, singing, drawn out, hunched over, big-eyed, never-ending father. How does one turn an eye of critique on a dad? I both refuse and am incapable at the same time. I know too much of him to parse him from myself. His laugh is my laugh. His favorite songs are my blood red. His narrow intensity is my own eager blindness. We both climb into bed at night and twitch our feet across the country, side to side, and shake the sheets until sleep takes us unwilling prisoners. You don't know him like I do. I've known him for years. <laughs> I know all his opinions. I anticipate his habits. I've bathed myself in his ripping temper like too hot water that my insolent skin has grown too numb to flinch from anymore. When he has caused harms, they haven't felt like shortcomings. They've felt like inevitabilities. And his inevitabilities are inevitably my inevitabilities. His barked orders have not coded as born of any anxieties. They've just been the laws of my land. How could anything be different? And my adolescent heart has fought against his immovable mandates for too many years to ask any questions about why he is the way he is. How does one inquire into the intentions and motivations of the man who has given you the very language you use to ask these questions? As I've grown older, I've gained enough distance to turn around and see my big man for the small man he is. Far from me and most others these days, working remotely from his suburban home, a lifetime spent to get there, and I don't know enough about why. How does one turn an eye of critique towards someone they barely know at all? How dare I? I've grown older and these days sometimes he tells me. Sometimes on the phone he tells me he's forgetting things more and moving around less and he shows me a hint of worry before he whisks it all away and forces me to regard him with the same cool indifference that I got so easily before. These days I think of what he is and isn't capable of what he wishes had and hadn't happened to him or to me. These days, when I remember, I ask him to show me his heartaches. And he does it. So readily, so enthusiastically, so thoughtfully that I despise him for not telling me that I should have been asking him these questions all along. Recently, I spent two whole months at my parents' home, a length of time that I was hoping would absolve me of all of my guilt of being away from them and shut their own mouths in turn. The long calcified resentment within the walls of that home were too thick for me to disturb with any interventionalist, cloyingly happy distractions. So I settled into a slightly matured version of my distant teenage self like it was a bad habit that I couldn't shake 
even for the sake of providing my folks with the reprieve that they clearly were expecting from me. I calmly noted that my dad's temper had gotten worse. I intervened in his endless rants on occasion, but I mostly stayed away. One night he blew up at my mom, who quickly retreated upstairs, throwing decades-old insults back at him over her shoulders. I stood on the stairs between them as he screamed, spittle flying from his lips, eyes lost. His voice was more ragged than I remembered. He seemed smaller. Then he sat down, eyes closed for two hours. I did not ask him why. My little brother came home that night deliberately late, and my father's indefatigable patience shuddered back into existence as he began an endless interrogation at my brother's indifferent face. My brother walked upstairs, and my dad closed his eyes again. My brother asked no questions either. I left to Tampa to see my sweet older sister and talk to her for the first time as adults and alone. No one but the two of us wizened a little, hurting a little, and my sister told me not to trust my father. She was loyal to the last, and look where it got her, she said. She wouldn't let this happen to me, she said. We both nodded, knowing that I would be no different. I went back to my parents' home and sat with my father on a couch all night, listening to our favorite songs and laughing, laughing until dawn broke, loyal until the end. I called him earlier today, trying to get some inspiration for how to continue this story, and I said, you have one minute, I'm doing something important. If you had three pieces of advice, what would they be? And as he was self-scanning items at Walmart with the credit from all of the items that he returned 15 minutes earlier, <laughs> he said three things to me. Never procrastinate. Never lie. And always take care of your old man. Thanks. Um, I have once a storyteller say this to me. Men, at some point, they were all innocent boys. At what point do boys become men, the toxic men? Not all of them are toxic. But at what point, what went wrong? That's the thing we need to figure out. Uh, it just reminded that story, so much similarity to my own. And the thing is, trauma gets passed on intergenerationally. And it's not just boys who inherit, inherit, right? Girls and women. I find myself, sometimes I, I had to catch myself because I worry that I display the same characteristics of my father. It's not just gender, it's power. So let's think about that. At one point, do we do wrong in raising boys to become men? And when do we, how do we break that cycle? Where do we start? How's everyone doing? Good, good. Thank you so much, Yvonne Bindu, for a beautiful piece. We are up to.
to our last storyteller, Anne Perky. She just got down with the, uh, her solo performance at Philly of Solo Storytelling Show, Solo Storytelling Festival with Lifeline Theater, uh, major in film and writing, and she has been doing storytelling all over the place. Uh, she's going to tell a story. Um, it can be triggering. Um, so if you need to step out, totally fine. Um, if not, let's listen to her. Let's welcome Anne Perky. Thanks, Ada, and thanks to everyone who's read. It's unbelievable. The story is called Happy Pappy Weekend. And again, if it's triggering, um, do what you need to do. I appreciate that. I grew up in Lake Forest, Illinois, a wealthy suburb on the North Shore of Chicago. My dad was a successful businessman. My mother was a homemaker, and I had two siblings. On the outside, everything looked like the perfect American dream. We belonged to a country club and had tennis lessons and swim lessons. We took luxury vacations. We attended the Episcopal Church. We looked the part. But something was terribly wrong. My dad was an alcoholic with a whole second life in Chicago. He stayed all, out all night in bars with his friends and was cheating on my mother and would come home at four in the morning. But we always kept going as though nothing was happening. That's just what we did. I was my dad's favorite. At age 16, he let me drink Smirnoff vodka with him. At the dinner table, my dad and I would discuss literature and culture. We would go on for hours. My dad even had a nickname for me. He called me AF, which stood for Annie Fanny in Playboy, a character in Playboy magazine. My dad walked around in his underwear after church, grabbing his crotch. He did other inappropriate stuff all the time. We thought it was normal. In 1974, I attended Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York. The drinking age in New York was 18. Though I was 17, I drank in the bars to excess all the time. Skidmore, a girls' school, had all kinds of parties all of the time. Many of them revolved around alcohol. And in spring, there was one that everyone was really excited about. It was the happy happy weekend. This was a major tradition at Skidmore where fathers came to see their daughters from all over the U.S. I was so excited. My dad agreed to come. He said over the phone, I've paid for the goddamn school. Of course I'll be a pappy. There was a whole weekend filled with daughter and pappy activities, but the activity I remember most etched in my mind was the kickoff cocktail party and one of the historical fancy bars in Saratoga. I remember that the room was beautiful. There were round tables with white tablecloths, and there were elaborate banners that said, Welcome, Pappies. There were waiters passing elegant hors d'oeuvres on fancy trays. All the Pappies were dressed in blue blazers with corduroy pants, some with tiny mallard ducks on them. Pappies were being introduced to other Pappies from all over the country. 
Good to see you, Charles. I went to Cho, too. Bethany is doing so well. My dad wasn't interacting with the other pappies. Instead, we sat at the bar alone. My dad had had drinks in his hotel room because I could smell it when he got to the party. I was sipping a Singapore sling. I don't remember what alcohol was in it, but it was very popular at school and it was red. I had a long skirt on and a peasant top. My dad didn't eat any of the hors d'oeuvres, just sat, slammed vodkas, and smoked Viceroy cigarettes. We were chatting about how great it was that I was into creative writing and how much he loved that I was into Jack Kerouac. It was like I was back home chatting like when I was 16 at the kitchen table. I was glad to be with my pappy. Then all of a sudden, my dad reached over and rammed his hand down my skirt, violently clawing at my clit. I know now what to call it. I didn't then. I froze and was completely rigid. He called me another name, Nancy. You are so beautiful. I don't know how long it went on, but I don't think it was very long. I left my body but kept smiling. He took his hand out of my skirt and came out of what I know now was a blackout, and we continued to chat about Kerouac and sip our drinks. I have no idea how I get, got back to my dorm. I don't remember the rest of Happy Pappy Weekend. A couple months later, now it's summer, my mom and I are sitting at the kitchen table after playing a game of tennis. My mom had her big, round, 70, 70s glasses on and was smoking a cool cigarette. I thought it would be a good time, because I was alone with my mom, to tell her about Happy Pappy Weekend. I thought, she's my mom. She's going to help me with this. I said, can I tell you something? Sure. And I said, Dad touched me on my vagina at Happy Pappy Weekend. She took a long, slow drag from her cool cigarette, paused, then said, If you ever repeat that in this house again, you have no idea how much trouble you'll be in. And then we went back to talking about tennis. The sexual abuse continued with my dad. So when the Kavanaugh thing hit, it blew the lid off my anger. I became obsessed with it, the Kavanaugh and Dr. Blase Ford hearings. I was watching TV all the time. I was on Twitter, Facebook, and on the phone with all my female friends. I was in a blind rage. My dad was like this. My boyfriend in high school who fingered me like this. And there was a professor in college who essentially raped me in a bunk bed. And now, at 60 years old, I've addressed the impact of this sexual abuse in group and individual therapy. I don't know why it took me this long. I had mentioned it to people over the years, but had never delved into it like when I was 60. I was in denial. I referred to my dad as funny and sarcastic. Yes, he had a drinking problem, but so what? At first, there was shock and shame when I was confronted in therapy with the reality of what had happened to me. But talking about it in group and individual therapy helped me come out of denial and own it. 
The people who were supposed to protect me the most as a child ended up being my abuser and admonished me for speaking out. With Kavanaugh, I was outraged. I can completely resonate with Dr. Ford's testimony. I can understand waiting. After I told my mom, it took me another 42 years to openly say my story. My life looked perfect, and it happened to me. I saw, he's getting away with it. He can do anything, but it didn't affect his prospects for the Supreme Court. Like Kavanaugh, my dad was successful. So if you're a privileged, successful man, you can get away with anything. Today, I'm grateful that the awareness of sexual abuse is now out in the open. I'm grateful I experienced the rage of my own story and shared it with my friends and wrote about it. But I'm also incredibly grateful for my 20-year-old daughter. But this brought up what terrifies my husband and I the most, that she'll be a victim of sexual abuse. My daughter is amazing. She is in college and a writer-performer like myself. But she also has cerebral palsy, which means she has difficulty walking. She uses a cane. She's also very naive and thinks the best of everyone. It's a statistic that most people with physical disabilities are apt to be sexually abused. They're easy targets. I can run. She cannot. I can deck someone, and she cannot. I can kick someone in the balls, and she cannot. So this is my journey, to be a vigilante about her protection because I wasn't protected. To advocate for her in the world because no one advocated for me. To love her unconditionally and treat her with dignity because no one did that for me. The onslaught of sexual abuse almost destroyed me, but it didn't. It forged a warrior. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you so much. Um, I'm going to say this. When that happened, and <laughs> I cry every show. And texted me and say, I have this story. I need to tell it. But there's no place for me to tell. And I managed to get her to pour one out. And she waited for some time to get to the show. And here's the thing, why are we doing storytelling? To stigmatize, to shame, get rid of embarrassment, listen to survivors. What are we doing right now with Me Too and all the movements? Naming, right? Name what's unspeakable, what's unspoken. And that's what this show is about. Take the story, process them. Sexual violence doesn't just affect individuals, affect the whole family. So look around and pay attention to people that you love. Intervene, do something, start with you. Thank you, this is our night. Thank you very much for coming. This is the end of our show. Thank you for listening. Our next show, will be on Thursday, April 25th at Center on Hostet. Thank you for listening. Until next time.